Welcome to Pontifex. I'm Fry. And I'm Brie, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And this is episode 17, Zephyrinus. Oh, I like that name. That's a good name. It is a good name. That's a good, like, 80s band name. Yeah, yeah. I always think Red Hot Chili Peppers. Unfortunately, that's a terrible song. I really don't like that song. I don't think I've ever listened to that song. I made like a real serious point not to listen to the Red Hot Chili Peppers. I didn't like them either, but my brother was super into them, and I remember hearing that song coming from his room forever, so maybe that's why I hate it so much. No escape. There is no escape. Now, that being said, this is going to be an episode full of good names, I think, so yeah, I guess. Do you know anything about Zephyrinus? Nope. I didn't even know he was a Red Hot Chili Pepper song, so... Well, I mean, I wouldn't expect you to, but I will somewhat, I don't know, preface this with, uh, this is the inception of where some drama's gonna go down, so... The next couple popes that we cover should be really interesting. Buckle up, as I say in almost every episode, buckle up, let's jump into it. Zephyrinus was born in Rome, and he was the son of Habundius, another Habundius. We just covered this like two episodes ago. There was another Habundius father. They are not related. It's just a very strange coincidence, and I had to go back and check my notes to make sure I didn't screw up, but nope, that's what it says. There is another man called Habundius. Must be a popular name. And there are some sources that suggest that Zephyrinus's birth name could have been Zephaniah, but this is just kind of thrown out there. It's not really corroborated anywhere, and there's no real reason that he would have changed it to Zephyrinus. We are not at the point where papal names are yet a thing, so more than likely this is one of those later scribal errors just messing things up. We actually know a little bit about his early life, sort of, kind of, let's give this a little bit of a preface, because like his successor, most of what we know about Zephyrinus, of his life, his personality, his papacy, everything he ever did comes from Hippolytus, who was his chief critic. Oh, someone who, okay. Yeah, so everything we know about Zephyrinus and our next pope is basically because this dude hates them so much. He writes nothing but shade about them. Everything that I'm going to tell you, we kind of have to decipher what is true and what is just, like, straight haterade at this point. It's gonna get salty in some parts. Right off the bat, we have Hippolytus's Philosomena in which he describes Zephyrinus as a simple man without education. Mm. So right off the bat, we're just getting a dig in, and this is already setting up justifications for things that Hippolytus is going to be really frustrated with later on. It's because he's a dummy. Yeah, he's like saying, oh, this, you know, this man, he's not very smart, so if he gets taken in or makes bad choices, it's because he's dumb. Now... Scholars have tried to soften the blow of Hippolytus and suggest that maybe this is supposed to be implicit that when it says he didn't have any education, 
It's because instead of taking higher studies of theology that were available in the church, he dedicated himself more to the church in like a practical way. It says that he got more involved in like church administration rather than theology. So maybe that's why he had no education, but I don't know. This seems kind of iffy because they've never really made a distinction between church roles like this when we were discussing education at all. So it just feels like a dig. Yeah, he clearly can read and write. Yeah. Basically, at some point, Victor, our previous pope, dies, and this uneducated simple man becomes the next pope can read and write, and people are electing him to the office of Pope. He must be doing something right. He must be at least making some sort of impression. If you buy the argument that maybe it was that he didn't take theology, maybe he's proving himself really, really well in church administration, so he could be a good fit even if he didn't have that extra education. The first thing that... Zephyrinus does when he becomes pope is he calls on Calixtus of Antium. And you may remember that this is the Christian that Pope Victor had helped get freed from the mines in Sardinia. He calls him back. Once he had left Sardinia, he had gone to Antium, and we'll get into that in more detail later. But at this point, Zephyrinus calls upon him, brings him to Rome, makes him a deacon, and decides, You are going to be my chief advisor. And he, he trusts Calixtus with a major project, which is to oversee the development of the cemetery, which will eventually be known as the Catacombs of St. Calixtus. And we will get into the cemetery in more detail the next episode, because it's going to be Calixtus's episode. Oh, he gets to be Pope. Spoilers. Spoilers. But we've already kind of said that he was a future Pope, so spoilers upon spoilers. For now, all we need to know is that the church had come into possession of some burial land along the Via Appia during Victor's papacy, and now it was becoming a burial place for popes and Christian martyrs. In short form, only the emperor and his family were allowed to be buried inside Rome, so everyone else had to be buried outside Rome, but there hadn't really been a safe place for these burials to take place for the Christians because they're still very much outsiders. But they've been given this plot of land, presumably from some very wealthy Christians, and now they're going to make their own cemetery. More detail later. But what we should take from this is that likely Calixtus and Zephyrinus knew each other at some point in some capacity before this, but we don't know how. Maybe they had traveled together to preach, maybe they were buddies. Either way, they are going to be super close throughout this whole papacy, for better or for worse. But things are going to get into that for worse for the church, because despite Emperor Septimius Severus carrying on the Christian toleration that Commodus had had, he has this in his early years of his rule, it's not going to stay that way. So we're at a period of time where we've been under some toleration for a while, and yes, if you are a Roman history buff and you're paying attention, there are two emperors between Commodus and Severus, but I will leave it to you to check out the Totalis Rankium episodes on Pertinax and Didius Julianus. Hilarious. Didius Julianus. Oh, that's not even the best name I'm going to give you at some point. I don't think it's in this episode, but when we get there, you're going to love it. What we know about this time 
as Zephyrinus becomes, you know, into the early stages of his papacy, what we know about Septimius Severus changing his philosophy on toleration comes from the Historia Augusta, which is (laughs) a literal mess of a source with, like, no actual historical fact to go on. It is basically the Liber Pontificalis of the Roman Empire, but on steroids. It's got several agendas. It has so many, and Rob and Jamie always refer to it as like a group of men sitting around the pub at three in the morning writing history, and that is that is very accurate. It is not something that we should take with any seriousness. So, with that in mind, what it does tell us is that around 202 or 203, Severus passed an edict that forbade conversion to Christianity or Judaism. This prohibition doesn't seem to have had it out for people that were already Christian at the time, and we can assume by extension that this is because there are high-ranking and influential members in the imperial court that are Christian, like ones that Severus favored. We, We have this little side note where Tertullian tells us that Severus's personal physician was a Christian, but it did declare severe penalties for new converts, or for Christians who were in the process of actively converting people. It's dangerous ground. You can all be Christians, but nobody else. Don't make a new one. And like always, we have other persecutions that are happening across the Empire, like in Carthage, where we have Saints Perpetua and Felicity being martyred, and in Numidia, but... It had been a long time since this kind of thing was happening in Rome, and Christians had been getting pretty comfy in the lull of the persecution, so this is mm, this is starting to get dangerous ground. Also, the Historia Augusta tells us that the cause for this change of heart centered around an anniversary celebration for Severus as emperor. Oh. And basically what he says happened is at this celebration, Christians boycott en masse including the higher-ranking influential Christians of the court, because this kind of celebration would have been overtly pagan. And so what they're saying is this edict is Severus being really salty about the boycott. But that seems really, really unlikely. Christians have been passing up on pagan practice for a while now. And let's be honest, I'm sure a lot of Christians still really enjoyed having a good hosting of Roman games to celebrate the emperor, even if they were pagan. Like, Yeah, have some fun. Who cares? It doesn't seem very likely. But again, we're, we're getting this from the Historia Augusta. So even if it did happen in the first place, and if so, we don't even know if anybody was actually persecuted through this edict. But what other source referred to this as the Fifth most bloody persecution against the church, which is so weirdly specific. What comes above those? Um, it did not say. <laughs> and I did some looking, and I mean, there have been some really, really bloody persecutions, and there's no record of anybody actually falling to this edict. So, yeah, I don't know. It's just, it's so specific. That someone sat there and, like, ranked them, and then was like can we really pass judgment on anybody for doing some ranking though no but i mean like he didn't have did he go get his friend and was like let's talk about christian persecution well i mean that would be a far more depressing podcast than what we're doing (laughs) we'll cover that in good spirits anyways so we have severus he's changing his mind 
Funnily enough, things are going to get better for the Christians again when Severus's son, Caracalla, is elevated to the purple. What we need to learn here is that emperors that are awful for Rome are not too shabby for Christians. Because Caracalla is awful, awful, awful. He's the one that if, if you see his bust, he's like glaring and looks like he wants to kill you. Oh, do you have a picture? I need to see a picture. Oh, it's he, he wants to kill you. And it's not just one bust. It's every bust of Caracalla that's ever been done. He wants to kill you. There's one. <laughs> he sure does. That one looks like, uh, <laughs> no, they, they all do. He looks like he had plugged his phone in across the room and someone touched it. <laughs> <laughs> that is the ultimate sin, you know, death. And Caracalla would be the kind of person who would sentence you to death for that. But he would not sentence you to death for being a Christian, so good times. Actually, in 212, he's going to issue an edict that is going to grant citizenship for all free people across the empire of any religion, so... If the data's right, that also kind of falls within the time that Zephyrinus is pope. We go through this little weird period with Severus kind of changing his mind, and then we go back to crazy emperors that are cool with the Christians, so. But through all this, this weirdness, what does Zephyrinus do or say about the changing attitudes of the emperor? Well, Father Alban Butler tells us that this holy pastor was the support and comfort of the distressed flock, and that's all we have. He's comforting people. We don't have any evidence of how, but, you know, he's there. He's being a good Pope dude. There's several ways he could have comforted people. Yes, but the only other source we have that would have covered what he would have done right would have been Hippolytus, and he's not going to say anything on that front. Nope, he did good. Let's ignore it. Pretty much. That sort of covers the ebb and flow of imperial tolerance for Christianity, and since we're in a period where things are not so bad... We get to dig into all of the internal divisions that are rearing their head inside the church. Remember how Victor went and fudged all the relationships between East and West? Oh my god, yeah. This is just the beginning. It's heresy time. We'll start with Theodotus, which we talked about last week, the leather seller slash tanner. We're unsure if it's occupation, really. We're unsure if it's one or the other or both. It involves leather. Victor had excommunicated him in our last episode over that adoptionism viewpoint. To recap, Jesus had been born merely a man, had only become the Holy Spirit at the time of his baptism, and only become a god at the resurrection. That's that idea that's going around. He's been cast out, and it seems that Theodotus himself leaves Rome after this point when he's excommunicated. But he still had a lot of followers that stayed in Rome, and they maintained their community. And now they're under the leadership of a new and different Theodotus. The money changer Theodotus. And we're absolutely sure it's not the same man having made his business profitable? Well, no, it's very specific that these are two different men. But the naming coincidence, and, and, and I like that idea. I think, you know, he, he just got himself a little smart little mustache, changed his... Yes. For for the sake of posterity, I'm going to say that they are the same man now. And the other guy who's running this at the time of Theodotus the Money Changer is a guy called Asclepiodotus. That's another great name. The shocked silence there. I pictured a snail and then couldn't go anywhere with that. What? How do you get snail out of Asclepiodotus? It sounds like a snail's name. Well, let's see if uh, 
what he does reminds you of a snail. We're told by Eusebius that these adoptionists get their hands on a priest confessor called Natalius. And here's the thing, Natalius was extremely vulnerable at this particular moment in time because he had just been tortured for his faith by local officials. So this, like, brutally shaken man, priest confessor, is now in the hand of the adoptionists and Asclepiodotus, who comes to him and persuades Natalius that he should join their community, where he will be protected and paid for his services as a bishop. Oh no. Apparently to the tune of 150 to 170 denarii a month. Going back <laughs> to some of that comparative calculation for money values, today a denarius was worth about a day's worth of pay for the average standard pay worker. So they've suggested it would be somewhere in the realm of like $50. So this is a lot of money. It's like 150 times 50 is a lot of money for this dude. It's five times the average income for any person. That's a lot of money. So this poor, vulnerable man agrees and comes over and joins the adoptionists. Well, I would too. Yeah, like, you think about it and it goes, okay, manipulating somebody in their weakest moment, okay. But this goes horribly for him. Oh no. He's immediately racked with guilt. And if we take the stories at their word, he is harassed by visions and awful dreams to the point where he believes that he's being tortured by angels whipping him all night until he absolutely breaks down. Wow. So within 24 hours, this man is just like, nope, I am, like, I am just a crumbling wreck. So come morning, he gets dressed in sackcloth and covers himself in ashes. And this is a sign of penitence that the church will carry on with, but he comes this way and he throws himself literally at the feet of the Pope to cry and confess and beg to be welcomed back into the church. This poor, poor, broken man. Okay. First of all, it was only like 24 hours? Yep, pretty much. Well, maybe they didn't even notice he was gone. It's possible. All right. Continue the story. He's clearly been taken advantage of. He's been brought into heresy, and even if it is a little longer than 24 hours, he is a broken, broken man. Zephyrinus agrees and welcomes Natalius back into the church, and he receives communion, and this seems like the obvious thing to do, right? Mm -hmm. It seems like compassion and forgiveness and all of those things that we associate with popeliness, but for this, he will be criticized for not dealing with heresy strong enough. What? Oh, of course. Bye, I hate your guts. That's fine. Yeah. Hippolytus isn't having it, because he's a dick. Apparently. We're not rating him, so... Not yet. Ooh, spoilers. Sizzle. <laughs> so, we should check in with the Montanists, because we haven't talked about them in a while. No, what are our good friends doing? Well, remember Tertullian, our historical source that turned Montanist? Yep. Well, it's around this time that he splits from them again, to form his own group, which would vaguely be known as their Tertullianists. He's just betraying everybody. So he's doing his own thing now, and this seems to be mostly because of a man called Proclus, or Proculus, 
and Procolus was the leading Montanist of this time period. And like those who came before him, he even tried to start his own group called the Plocanii. I wouldn't want to be called that. It's not a good name. I join you, but could you get a better name? Why don't you just stick with Montanism? <laughs> so it's getting all very factional in Montanism. Optatus tells us that Zephyrinus openly condemned the Montanists, going so far as to say that any Montanist who wanted to rejoin the church would actually have to be rebaptized to do so. This isn't the issue now that it will be in the future, but in the Catholic Church, you're only supposed to be baptized once and once only. So this is weird. This is really, really weird. Especially when you consider that they will literally hate so, so hard on Anabaptists for rebaptism later. Like, hating Anabaptists is the only thing that Catholics and Protestants will agree on during the Reformation. They will stop killing each other to kill the Anabaptists together any chance they get over this issue. It's weird that we see a rebaptism as even an option here. So, just pointing that out. They're trying some things. And that's not going to be something that they stick with. They didn't like it. And I mean, we're not going to talk about consequences of rebaptism for probably, oh, I don't know, like a thousand years in this, but... They're allowed to experiment. So what we need to know from this is, is he's not having the Montanists anymore. It's kind of been choosy up until this point. They're not quite wanting to excommunicate because the Montanists live pretty good Christian lives. Now there is a stance being taken. We've got the heresy out of the way. So now we need to do some setup for next week's episode. Oh yeah? For real? Because some about to go down <laughs> with our main critic the hater hippolytus so let's just for a second we need to acknowledge that hippolytus is an extremely important and influential church figure at this time and and we will come to see why he served as a presbyter and he is said to have been a direct student of irenaeus who we've been using a lot and by the way, likely died within Zephyrinus's papacy. So thank you, Irenaeus, but he's gone. Well, thank you for your service, sir. Yeah, and we will, he's one of those people that, like, when we need a spot to fill, we will talk about him because he has helped us so much so far. But back to Hippolytus. He was a prolific religious writer. Some of his writings include The Refutation of All Heresies, which is ten books in total, a book called On Christ and the Antichrist, another called The Apostolic Tradition, and so, so many more that I don't feel like listing out. More of the same. Yeah. Now, he's a direct follower of the theology of Justin the Martyr, who we mentioned in Pius's episode, and so he's a large proponent of this idea of the divine logos, which, where effectively logos translates to the word, and the logos or the word is Jesus. In the Gospel of John, where it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So therefore, if you wrap this all around, what they're saying is Jesus's divinity was always and forever with no other beginning but the beginning, and this is a shot at the adoptionists. For Hippolytus, Jesus is indivisible from the Father. Jesus is of God, but plural from God, and... <laughs> This is one of those debates that we will go on and on and on and on about in the Arian controversy. For now, basically what we need to know is Hippolytus stands on this. He feels very strongly about this, but at the time, 
his theology in particular wasn't simply accepted as official church stance. Even at the time when he's preaching this, it's so confusing at the time for the people trying to wrap their head around it that it's not even generally accepted by the Christian community. And different theologians are going to rise to challenge him on this issue because it's very confusing. So the most important of these challenges for this moment comes from two men called Cleomenes and Sibelius, who set up a religious school to teach essentially the opposite of what Hippolytus is arguing. And their belief will become known as modalism or modalistic monarchianism or patripassianism. We're just going to call them modalists. It's easier. And this is the idea that basically everything divine is the oneness of God. So Christ is an incarnation of God, a manifestation of God, indivisible from God because he is God. When Christ was crucified, he's not just the son of God, but also God himself. While they agree with Hippolytus that the Godhead or the divinity of Christ has always been, they fundamentally disagree on the nature of Christ. Hippolytus sees Christ as an incarnation of the Logos, that word, and the modalists saw Christ as an incarnation of God. Now here's the thing. Zephyrinus didn't really take a side in the debate at this time. He kind of offered some platitudes, and he said there's only one God, and this was indeed the Lord Jesus, so he agrees that it was the Son who died, but not the Father. So he's going a little column A, a little column B. And it's going to be a hundred years from now, during the Council of Nicaea, that these ideas are going to even get looked at, so messy and confusing up until that point. And if at this moment there was even a right way to go, it's not evident to Zephyrinus at the time. Even later religious sources are going to look back on this at the time, and they seem to understand Zephyrinus not declaring one side to be right and one side to be heresy, because even as they put it, the heresy of the modalist is not at first clearly evident. And we know that Hippolytus' ideas are just as confusing. But as we know, Hippolytus is not a fan at all of Zephyrinus, and he found Zephyrinus to be an uneducated leader, weak against heresy, who he accuses of accepting bribes and taking really bad advice, especially from Calixtus, who Hippolytus hates more than anyone ever. And now, Zephyrinus isn't stepping in when someone's challenging Hippolytus' teachings, and so he's getting really, really pissed off. And he starts pushing Zephyrinus towards the Christ is separate from the Father comments and asks him to condemn modalism, but Zephyrinus is like, no, I can't do that right now. So Hippolytus throws a fizzy. He, he can't handle it. He attacks Zephyrinus in writing and accuses him of being a modalist. And Fair enough, maybe he did lean that way. It's it's impossible to tell from this point in history. But considering he didn't make a stance one way or another, we don't know. He's super angry now. Hippolytus is super angry. It's percolating and it's festering and it's just about to explode. And that's where we're going to leave that whole thing for now. So we'll pick up with that next week. Cliffhanger. Anyways, before we let Zephyrinus go die, we've got to briefly <laughs> tackle 
the things that are credited to him in the Liber Pontificalis. What do we got this time? We've got four ordinations for 14 priests, seven deacons, and 13 bishops. Church is still expanding. And I know we keep saying someone should do the numbers on this, but I just got to a pope that they actually give us all the total numbers. There is like a census moment, so... I mean, you can tell a lot of people have died off at that point because the numbers aren't reflective, but we will get the numbers of where the church exactly is. That's coming. Now, he also gets two decrees. And the one that we can say might not actually be apocryphal, the one he might have actually, actually done, because it fits in with what we know so far, is that he allowed for the forgiveness of lapsed Christians to welcome them back into the church if they did penance. We see this with Natalius, and we see how much it annoyed Hippolytus. Oh, it annoyed him a lot. Oh, it's going to get so much worse. <laughs> He's just angry. It, like, it's one of those, like, it doesn't even matter what he does. The guy's going to be mad about it. Especially if Calixtus had anything to say about it. They could be, like, enjoying some super traditional Roman meal, and this man would be like, oh... They're eating bad food. They're too indulgent, yes. That is exactly the kind of person he is. So, it's also said that uh, Zephyrinus says that First Communion in the Church should happen at a minimum age of 14, no younger. No reasons given for this, it's just a thing, it's just there. You have to be 14 to have your communion. No reason. That's change. Yeah, yeah, I, I would think so. I seem to remember kids a lot younger than that going through that process. Second grade. Second grade. That's, that is definitely a lot younger than 14. I think it's half that. Seven. Oh, boy. Well, we'll see when that changes. Now, I read another copy of the Liber Pontificalis that also says that he decreed, and quote, In the presence of all the clergy and the faithful, that every cleric, deacon, or priest should be ordained. But they are already are ordained, and it's been decreed that that should be done in public already, so, don't know, goes on to suggest that he, quote, made regulation for the church that there should be vessels of glass before the priests in the church and servitors to hold them while a bishop was celebrating mass with priests standing about him. Thus mass should be celebrated and the clergy should assist in all the ceremony, except for when that belongs only to the bishop. From the consecration the bishops hand the priest should receive the consecrated wafer to distribute to the people. Blah, 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 blah. What that means is glass bowls for Jesus wafers and help the priest except where you can't help the priest. So so those are the things that we get about Zephyrinus that are not from Hippolytus. And, and that's it. And they're probably all not true because Liber Pontificalis. Then he dies in 217, and there are no associated stories with his death. Actually, there there are sources that specifically said he was not martyred. Oh, they had to be real specific. But then we also have the sources that follow it up with the token martyrism, like, although he wasn't physically martyred for the faith, his suffering, both mental and spiritual, during his pontificate still earns him the title of martyr. He's a token martyr, right? He's one of those ones that they just kind of go, oh, yeah, all the first hundred popes, martyrs, totally. I hope it's not that many. Martyrs. And he would be called a martyr in the faith for at least a hundred years after his death, but it, it does kind of seem to peter out after that. No one, no one's making that claim anymore. Now, this is interesting. 
Despite appointing Calixtus to oversee the new cemetery that we've been talking about, Zephyrinus is not buried there. He gets buried in his own little separate cemetery near the Clementine Cemetery on the Via Appia. He is not in the tombs of Calixtus. Or on Vatican Hill. Or on Vatican Hill. They won't be on Vatican Hill for a while now. Just going all over the place, okay. Yeah, and uh, I went to the tombs of Calixtus, so we're going to have lots to talk about when we get there. But for now, it's time that we rate him. Papatum infallium. So we have to make a choice. Which view do we want to follow? Are we going to take Hippolytus's perspective of him as this bad, uneducated leader who was corrupt and listening to bad counsel and willing to let heretics practice in the church? And are we going to call him gullible and ignorant and knowing nothing about theology and being changeable and it's all Calixtus's fault? Or do we decide that he's compassionate and he's trying to be a unifier and keep things together after the debacle of what happened after Victor? He does excommunicate the Theodosians and the adoptionists. So... He believes it should be done in some cases, but he welcomes people back like Natalius when he thinks it's right. Yeah, he seems more like he has a level head on his shoulders and less like he's herping a stirp. Yeah, I don't feel the herderp as much as Hippolytus does. I don't think he does a whole lot here that he can actually be credited for, but I'm definitely not going to side with Hippolytus on this, so I gotta give him something. I'm thinking I'm going to give him like a three for showing the welcoming, forgiving nature of the church. Okay. I'll give him two for that, and then I'll give him I'll give him one for glass bowls and minimum ages for communion. All right. Well, I'll match you, but mostly for the uh, keeping, keeping the peace here. <laughs> yeah, I think the Natalius story resonates more with us than it would an audience at the time. Because we look at this broken man and we're like, poor man. We're not like, you apostate. So You must be punished. That, that's a whole thing that I'm digging into with later popes right now. So my brain, my brain is there. So that gives him a six for Papatum and Valium. Fructus prohibitum. Well, do we believe Hippolytus that he was taking bribes and listening to bad counsel? Well, he, he hates his counsel, though. Yeah. And, and I am going to be, how do I do this without being super spoilery? I like his counsel. Let's say that. All right. So I'm not going to give him any scandal points. No, me either. Okay. So then that's a zero. Seculari impactum. For this one, uh, most of the conflict is church-based. He doesn't really do anything that extends out into the secular world. Really. There's not really anything we can give him points for here. Someone gave him that land. He told someone to, to make a cemetery, which is kind of secularly, because it takes up space. You know, I'll give you that. I will say that the land came under Victor, and the cemetery is purely for Christians. However, I'm going to give it points because I, as a secular human being in 2018, got to visit it. So I'm going to give him points for that. I'm going to give him a... I'm going to give him a... A one. I can't give him more than that for that. I was only going to give him a one, too. I'm just saying, like, it takes up space that secular people walk around in. It's true. And when I was there, if you listen to our bonus episode about my papal audience, I will also say that when I went to the tombs of St. Calixtus, 
the 70,000 altar boys were there. Oh, no. It was so busy. Still lovely. I will still talk about it. It'll be cool. But for now, that gives Zephyrinus a score of two for Secularis Impactum. Fossium Sanctus. I'm starting to think this might be his round. Oh, yeah? Because we have, I'm going to, we don't have that, like, traditional image that we usually judge on. So I'm going to go with the one that's most closely associated with him. And then we have that other token one that comes up all the time. So we'll look at those two. And then I have an extra one. But three paintings? Yep. And this is his iconic image. Okay. (laughs) I thought you were going to laugh. I did. I laughed a little. He looks like a bird to me. I was thinking, um, it's he's got one of those ear flappy hats that were so popular when I was in high school. Well, I have to point out that he, what he's wearing is the papal tiara. Oh, I know. That totally 100% did not exist at this time. So when you see early popes wearing that, it is not at all accurate, but he looks really young. But also he looks very tired, like someone has kept him up past his bedtime for at least three months. I feel like Hippolytus has just been just harassing him, and he can't take it anymore, so he's just super annoyed. What do you want to give him based on this painting? I'm going to give him like a four. A four. That's that's a good score. Let's see. I like it. I'm going to give him a six. Really? It's different. It's so different than what we've been looking at. He doesn't look like that standard old man. He doesn't, but that doesn't mean we need to give him more points. Mm, Yeah, but I just, it's different, and I kind of like it. So I'm going to give him a 6. All right. That only gives him a 2.5 in total score, so. Here's the token picture that, uh, you know, we always have one of these. This is him when he's older. (laughs) I don't know what they did, but someone like, okay, the one side of his face there, it looks a lot like... When you, like, try to apply eyeliner, like his mustache in particular, like, you apply it perfect on the one side, and then the other side you just keep drawing over. Yep. Yep. It is, there is definitely a distinction between half of the face is much darker. Someone made a mistake and was like, I don't have to redo this, I'll just cover it up. That's exactly what happened here. Other than that, he's just a grumpy old man. Yeah. Okay, here is our other picture. Now this is the moment when Natalius comes to him. Oh, this is nice. That's the reason I was going to show it to you. It's just, it's kind of like, oh, here's a moment that we can recognize. We have the obvious portrayal of penitence, and we have Zephyrinus looking like, you know, dude. He's doing the benediction thing. Yeah. The shocker, as it were. (laughs) I can't believe I ever said that. He's willing to take him back, and it's just kind of like, dude, it's all right. We'll get through this. And I think that's what Natalius needs. So I feel good about it. Tempus Pontificus. So we have 199 or 202 to 217 or 219. So that's a long time. Yeah. Um, his death is generally listed as the 20th of December, 217. So we're going to go with the 199 to 217, giving him eight. Years, which is a score of 4.5 for Tempest Pontificus. Nice, nice long papacy there. That is our highest score other than Peter. 
Yeah, Peter's gonna... Peter is the top scorer for this category. Just take that one every time. Unless Francis decides to, like, rule for, like, another 40 years or something super long. Yeah, that puts him in second place. That's pretty good. All right, everybody, it's the canon bonus round! He's a saint. His feast day is December 20th. But another source that says St. Zephyrinus, Pope and Martyr, lists his feast day as August 26th, inserted in the 13th century, and then removed in 1969 since he's not a martyr. So it seems like the December 20th is only a recent feast day for him, and that's because they use their traditional death day, so. Not a patron saint of anything. What do you want to make him? Mm. Let's make him the patron saint of people whose name was dragged through the dirt. So, victims of libel? Yeah. Victims of libel. I think, you know, I think that's good. Because our our next pope is going to have to deal with Hippolytus as well. But I think he's going to stand more on his own with it a little bit. So, I think that's fair that poor Zephyrinus, he just... He tried, and he did pretty okay, so let's see how he did with his final score. Any guesses? I don't know, like 18, 21? Yeah, you were close to the first time. He has a respectable 16 points. All right. That seems fair. That's not bad. More teens club. Yeah, and he's in the higher end of the teens club, so yeah, I mean, he didn't do astounding things, but he was a generally nice dude. And he's getting a lot of points in his Tempest Pontificus. So, yeah, I'm happy with that. And then we have to ask the question, is he popey enough? Is he pizzazzy enough? Is he papal bull worthy? Mm, nah. No, he's not. I, I'm going to call him the warm-up act to some stuff that's going to go down. So I feel like you need the opening band. You just do. That's exactly what he would be. He would be the opening band. Pretty good, but when you go home, it's not who you're talking about. Unfortunately, Zephyrinus, that means you're off to purgatory. Hopefully, you don't run into Hippolytus there, so. And that wraps us up for this episode. And now it's time for plenary indulgences, which are for our new Patreon supporters. So we have two plenary indulgences for today. Thank you, and let's indulge your temporal punishments. Rob Boyle from Totalis Rankium and Michael Beach. Thanks, guys, for supporting us. That is awesome. Ego te absolvo. And that makes it time for regular thank yous. So, as always, we need to thank Rex Factor for being our inspiration and Totalis Rankium for being our biggest supporters and doing our art and getting the word out about us. Thank you very much. And we also need to thank Rogue Classicist on Twitter who led to a very, very interesting opportunity for Pontifax, which led us to be interviewed by the Smithsonian Magazine, which was super, super cool. They asked us for some comments on new research about Pope Joan. Check out the article. It's linked on our Facebook page and our Twitter page. And we also should thank Mylan Solly for being the interviewer there. Thanks for thinking of us. That was awesome, awesome, awesome. We can be found on most major podcatching platforms, including Spotify. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook as Pontifax Pod. Feel free to message us. We usually always respond. 
If you want to send us a more long-form message, request, or otherwise get a hold of us, our email is pontifaxpod at gmail.com. For our bonus episodes and exclusive content, head over to our Patreon page and donate. That's patreon.com forward slash pontifaxpod. If you feel the need to buy us a tea, because we're not really coffee drinkers, but we do love tea, you can throw us a few bucks in our PayPal account at paypal.me forward slash pontifaxpod. As always, please subscribe and rate and review on iTunes or whatever you use. It really helps us get recommended to other people and allows more people to find us. And with that, we say thank you and goodbye. Bye!